Hi, and welcome to The Common Share, a podcast about cooperative businesses. I'm Asa Marshall with Cooperatives First, an organization that promotes cooperative business development in rural and Indigenous communities across Western Canada. For more information on us and what we do, visit cooperativesfirst.com. If you need resources for starting your own co-op, check out coopcreator.com. This is a great resource site that has everything you need to get a co-op up and running. As we all know, cannabis is now legal in Canada. British Columbia has a history of being a cannabis-producing powerhouse, with many small producers across the province. One would think these producers would benefit from legalization, but so far, this hasn't been the case. Though the Cannabis Act says Canada's aim is to have a mix of large and small growers supplying the market, very few small producers have received a license. Our guest today is David Herford, who is part of a group that thinks forming a cooperative is the perfect way to address this problem. The group has visited 10 communities across the province of BC to talk to small producers and compiled a report with their feedback from these consultations. The initiative was originally funded and supported by GrowTech Labs, a business accelerator that sees great potential for small producers in the cannabis industry. The group is moving forward to create the BC Small Cannabis Producer and Processor Co-op to give small producers a chance at more clout in the market. David and I had a great conversation about his wealth of experience in cannabis policy, the current state of things for small cannabis producers, and what he hopes the co-op will accomplish in the industry. He started out by telling us a bit about his background. My uh, background is mostly in government uh, affairs and working for large nonprofit organizations, crown corporations. I found myself working for Mr. Kretschian's government uh, between 1993 and 2003 between uh, British Columbia and then in Ottawa in 1998 and had the privilege of working with the federal health minister at a time where there's incredible policy work going on in the department around a whole bunch of different aspects of health care and uh, Alan Rock was the, the minister and he was just uh, an activist and terrific and was really wanted to get some things done. So a couple of the files that we were working on were the industrial hemp guidelines that came out in 1997-98. So I was handed some of these files and it was great to work on them. I have been smoking cannabis since I was uh, in high school, so to be a, a young person in this again 1999-2000, a whole different era in cannabis really. To be involved in those files was great and then through the national aid strategy and uh, the government had launched a palliative care strategy at the same time, we started to get in, to more directly involved in cannabis. Um, and the minister, of course, at that time was starting to sign uh, exemptions for people who had AIDS and other palliative diagnoses uh, to uh, give them access to drugs, special access to experimental drugs. And cannabis, of course, was one of those drugs at the time that people were finding gave them comfort during this uh, end-of-life period. So we started approving those, and I had the honor of being involved in that, and then that eventually led to the drafting of the regulations that led to the, have the medical marijuana program that we have today. Uh, after the government, I got involved in political activism. It was in the Liberal Party itself, and it was part of a couple of attempts to get legalization into the party's uh, platform. We were successful eventually in 2012, and we did a, a bit of a report. Of course, we were not in government at that time, and made some recommendations to our leadership, and that, uh, that certainly helped contribute to the uh, government, to the party leadership, putting that in the platform in uh, 2015, and of course, here we are today. So my background is a bit on the political side, but also in the government and the public affairs side. That's really interesting. So can you give us a bit more about your role with the BC Small Cannabis Producers and Processors Co-op? How did you get involved with this group? Yeah, I haven't worked in the cannabis sector uh, over that period of time, of course, with the 
was on the national board of the Liberal Party up until April, so really wasn't uh, uh, appropriate to get too involved in, in a lot of uh, any kind of activities, really, uh, in that regard. But since I had moved off of that position in April, I've had a lot of people approach me about getting involved in the cannabis sector. So I started to, to contemplate those opportunities, but really in areas where I thought there were gaps in the federal administration's policy. I want the policy to succeed, uh, but there are some challenges as to how it's being rolled out. Policy is not being as successful as it could be. And I think at the core of that is something that's close to my heart, and that is the fact that one of the reasons I don't think it's succeeding properly is that we do not have these small farmers in the game in any kind of big way. And I know when we developed the medical marijuana policy back in 1999-2000, it was successful because we did engage the growers directly, the illicit market growers directly. At that time, of course, they were the compassion clubs, really. And they had all the knowledge, uh, officials at Health Canada, uh, complete respect to how hard they worked. In 1999-2000, they didn't know anything about cannabis. Uh, not many people did. Uh, the people who knew about cannabis were the people who actually had their hands on the plant. So for us to have a successful policy, and I give the minister full marks for his leadership on this at the time, he knew we needed to talk to the people who were affected. And for me, that was a very rewarding experience, and I think it is one of the reasons the policy has stood the test of time and uh, the, the challenges that it has faced. And I think that that was missed this time around, and I think what we're trying to do now is correct that. David talked about some of the barriers that are keeping small producers out of the market. Some have to do with the stress and stigma that still surrounds the industry, and other barriers exist in legislation, including a 2,100-square-foot cap on the amount of cannabis a grower can produce and the cost and length of the application process. Though between 5,000 and 6,000 small producers were approved to grow medical cannabis by Health Canada before legalization, these growers are finding it difficult to enter into the recreational cannabis market now that cannabis is legal. Well, first of all, the meetings that we had, you know, these are people who are not used to coming out and, and coming into the public. I think that's the first thing that we have to, to understand. Just the whole nature of the sector has been to hide and to stay out of the light. And to some extent, that requires significant amount of innovation. I find these, these people are, are innovators at heart. Uh, they have, have survived and thrived in, in circumstances that we can't really even imagine. And they feel very passionate, of course, about what they do and, and the fact that they're helping people with their, their products. So I think uh, a lot of emotion. Uh, people are worried. They want to go legit. It's kind of like what they're hearing. They're hearing everyone say, we want you in. And then when they go to apply, it's like, well, you need all this money. You need all of this process. The application process has been developed without even consulting you, um, and you're going to have to fit into all these boxes. And I just don't think it's realistic uh, for them, and I think they're overwhelmed by it. And, of course, they have the pressure of the illegality of elements of the cannabis trade that still exists. So it's a tremendous amount of pressure. People worried about their livelihoods. So I fear that the small farmers may actually be harmed by the act if they're not allowed in. And I think that that's why I think it's very much in the government's interest to really look at ways uh, to accelerate the participation of these uh, incredible national assets that we have, these small farmers across the country. And they're a huge asset to a sector that the world is moving into. So I, I just, it doesn't make sense to me why we wouldn't do a better job of bringing them in. So there is the stress that we see in the meetings. We don't have any idea what pressure they're under from people who might be having nefarious motives in the black market. And we also know that there's people offering to help them, but for very large fees. And they don't really know how to deal with that. And of course, no financing options. 
uh, at least not to the degree that they would be available for other businesses. So a lot of pressures. Some hope, though. I think that they like the concept of the co-op because they understand basically that there's strength in numbers and that when they go into a room with a municipal bylaw officer to talk about the zoning of their farm or something that they need with uh, any other agency, they know there's a whole collective of, of people like them behind them and supporting them. So I think there is some optimism uh, that, hey, look, if we did get together, maybe we could accomplish something and achieve the economies of scale that we can't achieve right now. The medical program that we developed, uh, we people were able to grow their own cannabis or designate someone to grow for themselves. There's about 20, 25,000 of those across the country right now today that are, are allowed to do that under Health Canada. They obviously are pretty good at growing cannabis. And with the daily dosage connected to the grow, some of these uh, farms are scalable and large. But more importantly than that, the people themselves are able to grow. They have the knowledge. They should be really proactively approached to transition into the legal marketplace. In our senses, nothing like that has happened. Uh, that would be a logical first step for sure. Uh, the caps themselves, uh, this is a reflection, of course, of what we've been hearing from people as to why they're not applying. Uh, 2,100 square feet is just way too low. Uh, it is a, um, you know, the half the neutral zone of a hockey rink. That's a pretty small space. Um, the suggestion is to go to at least 4,200, which in addition to having a nice 420 reference, is just the uh, neutral zone of a hockey rink, not too big. That helps you with your business plan. That helps you with some of your economies of scale. Uh, it helps you with your bottom line. It helps make it more attractive. So that's one example. Um, so there's a number of things that we're recommending in the discussion paper that uh, that are very doable, uh, don't require a long process, could be done quite quickly to send a strong signal, I think, that the government is actually serious about doing what they said they want to do, which is to have a diverse marketplace. And I do believe it's one of the reasons people aren't going into the stores or buying from the government online because the products that they want are not there. People want that product from a small farmer, locally, fresh, it's locally grown, uh, they would like to see that option on the shelf, and it's not even close to being there right now. We have had so far, as I mentioned, 20,000 across the country, 6,000 in British Columbia. Those are just the ones registered with Health Canada. Of course, we know there's thousands more. You know, estimates in BC could be 15,000 growers here, but only 200 have even applied in the country. And as of last report at the end of February, only one had been approved. One small farmer uh, in Canada today has been approved. And, and we have supply shortages, et cetera, et cetera. We know the rest of the story. And that just doesn't make a lot of sense. When you have these people ready who are very skeptical of the government, who have been afraid of being arrested by the government, actually coming out and saying, okay, I'm ready to participate now. I am ready to meet you halfway here and go into the process and, and really become legit. I want to be legit, and the barriers are just so high that it, it doesn't look like the government is sincere mm -hmm. in achieving its goal. People think the plan is written to fail. And I know the opposition that I got when we were in Ottawa to get small producers more involved in the medical program at the beginning. People did not really want it. They were worried about people growing in neighborhoods, et cetera, et cetera. So a lot of opposition to it. And of course, there's been a number of efforts by subsequent governments to shut this element of the program down, and they, they failed. So there is a, has been traditionally a significant amount of bias within the government against these small producers. But I think that's changing, and I think people see the economic opportunity, particularly in rural communities of the employment, and certainly when we go around to these consultations, 
We're talking to local city councilors, local economic development officials in rural communities who really see this as a tremendous opportunity because I think they know it's there now and they want to keep it and they know that it's in danger as well. So I think that attitude is starting to shift and I think the government is now starting to realize it's also in their long-term interest to have a strong network of local cannabis farmers producing product for a domestic market. And what are the consequences of, of keeping small producers out of the market? I think a lost economic opportunity in rural communities. I think the government at some point will not allow black market to continue to thrive when it's legal. So I think there are criminal uh, elements here where people may uh, end up getting arrested. You know, so I think there's social elements associated with that, the social harm, the lost economic opportunity, and frankly, the success of the policy. This is the product that everybody wants. Uh, consumers want this product for medical and recreation purposes. So I think consumers of cannabis, and we're finding out there's millions of them, would not have access to a product that they really desire, and it gives them gives them joy or gives them a better quality of life. So I think those, that would be the downside, and I don't think the government would accomplish its goals because people would still try to be active in the black market. And as long as the government is keeping the products that people want off the shelves, I think there's going to be a danger of the black market existing. The question is going to be how enforceable will the law be if there's a whole group of people that have been uh, left out. Mm -hmm. I don't think that's the road we want to go. I think we want to be inclusive because the small farmers are a key part of the policy success. If we had small producer cannabis on the stores here, I think people would be going into the stores to buy it. And so as a result of your consultation process, your, your group has put out a draft discussion paper about establishing a craft cannabis co-op. And I know according to the report, significant change in approach by the federal government is needed so that the craft cannabis sector can survive legalization. Specifically, what changes do you want to see from the federal government? One is a series of regulatory improvements. I think that could be measures that really transition these uh, medical growers uh, into the recreation marketplace in a more formal, systemic way, some formal transition for them. They're a huge asset. There's over 20,000 of them across the country. That's something we could do right away, increasing the caps slightly from 2,100 square feet to 4,200 square feet for producers and similarly for outdoor and uh, processing as well. Um, those are some of the regulatory things we think they can do. And then broadly, um, some bigger picture is set a target. How many small producers do we want uh, in the country? Uh, how many do we need? Uh, set a target and let's start working to it. Set up a task force, work with the sector, look at ways that we can streamline the application process, really put our uh, roll up our sleeves and get to work here and uh, set a target, uh, a number that we want to reach. Uh, should be in the thousands. Um, we've talked about locating some of the headquarters uh, for, of cannabis into Western Canada from Ottawa. We think that they should be closer to the industry, particularly in British Columbia. Of course, provincial governments have areas of authority as well, and in our case, we're making some recommendations to the provincial government, uh, who's very supportive of the small farmers, so, particularly around agricultural land use, of the retail system and so on and so forth. So our focus initially, of course, is on the federal government. There's an election coming, and we think there's a short window of time for changes to be made. Um, but the things that we're proposing are very easy and doable. You guys have decided that a co-op would be a good way to organize small producers and get give them a little more clout in the market. How did you come to decide that the co-op model was the way to go on this, and, and how, what will a co-op do? 
Yeah, so we did a little bit of research uh, on what we thought the good business model would be. Everyone agreed that um, we needed to get everyone together, but what, how do you do it and under what model? So we did some basic research and looked around and looked at some models, you know, establishing a nonprofit association or or an alliance or something like that. And, and co-op just kind of jumped out at us as a, hitting all the marks in terms of what we had been hearing. Of course, we've been talking to small producers a lot. We all have good networks. And as we looked at it more, the connection to the credit unions, of course, from a financing side is attractive. The fact that there's an international set of principles already to guide the work, which saves you a lot of time and effort anytime you're setting up a new organization. And those principles really did seem to capture the ethic of small producers that we knew. So it was kind of tailor-made. BC uh, has a very successful co-op infrastructure here. We have legislation. So there's legislation that really provides transparency and comfort around investment options. It allows investment to come in. So it was checking all the right boxes. We then, uh, but we felt that maybe somebody's already started, and there are a couple of very small co-ops in BC that have been going for a little while. We went to the BC Co-op Association here. Growing up in small town Man- uh, Manitoba, uh, you know, co-ops are a way of life in rural communities. So personally, I was familiar with them, and the idea of a shared dividend, a shared prosperity, I think, is very appealing. Mm-hmm. Um, supporting each other, it was just very consistent with everything that we knew small producers to be. And the history of the co-op uh, is really a movement, and that's, I think, what we are trying to create here with small farmers is a little bit of a movement uh, so they can use their clout, their collective clout, from a purchasing perspective, from a political uh, perspective, and in terms of the social change that they can bring in their communities as well uh, with sharing the returns. So I think it was just natural for us. And when we went and met with the people who do co-ops for a living in BC, they were nothing but encouraging and thought it was a great idea. And since then, we've been blessed to have two or three really professional co-op developers supporting us in the development of this as we move through the incorporation process in BC. And, and of course, that's what we wanted to test with the consultation. We thought it was a good model, but did the actual people that we wanted to help agree with us? And so one of the main elements of this consultation that we just completed was to educate people a bit about what co-ops are and to get their feedback as to whether they agreed that this was a good model and then people really did respond positively to it. So it's given us uh, the sense that it's worth moving ahead. During the 10 community meetings, David said they heard a lot of suggestions about what people would like the co-op to do. You see that in the report. There's about 10 activities that they prioritized. Uh, Advocacy, of course, was number one. They feel the rules are stacked against them and they need to change the rules of the game or they're not going to be able to, to, to thrive. So that was clearly number one. They need direct help without applying to the government's process because it's very suffocating to them right now. And they're being asked to pay large consultant fees to navigate it and they just can't afford that. They want help with access to capital. They need money to invest in their business like anyone else does. They need help with uh, pooling resources and their purchasing power, as we've talked about earlier, in a whole bunch of different areas that we identify in the report. So there's a number of they want, obviously, a communications hub, a group that's kind of bringing everyone together and organizing uh, professional events for them and, and, and so on and so forth. Uh, they want that. They want uh, to work with governments at the local level. They want to work with indigenous communities. So they really want to be a partner uh, as well. They want the co-op to help them get grants or access to uh, uh, other support that might be out there. So a whole bunch of different things that we've identified in the report. So in that sense, the consultation was very 
uh, successful. I think we got a clear picture of what people want the co-op uh, to do and an understanding that it will evolve as the sector becomes more sophisticated. If we are successful and we do get thousands and thousands of growers going across BC and, and certainly across Canada as well, I think those priorities will start to adjust as we go forward and the sector really gets its, its feet. Mm-hmm. Will the members just be the small producers or are there plans to incorporate other types of membership? Yeah, small producers, BC-based processors, registered labs with Health Canada and nurseries. Uh, also retailers, uh, independent retailers who want to sell the product of small producers. Those are the two main uh, membership categories. Is obviously with most co-ops a founding a member category as well as we as we set it up in the initial stages. Those are the three core, you know, those are the core groups that we're proposing. We're also looking at ways that we can include consumers directly uh, and vendors uh, directly as well, and some other groups uh, out there. Unfortunately, I think we're going to go through this all over again. When we get into edibles and food and topicals and derivatives, there's a whole craft industry out there for that as well, where people in small communities are making, you know, food products, artisan crafts, you know, wellness products, bath bombs, all kinds of different products out there. And we know the big industries around food and beverage are just waiting to jump in on that. So we did talk about creating a platform for these folks who we know are going to be facing the same problems small farmers have been facing getting into the marketplace as well. Mm-hmm. You also mentioned that one of the goals of the co-op will to be create opportunities for Indigenous and non-Indigenous communities to collaborate. Can you talk a little bit more uh-huh. about what you see for that? Well, that's an area I think we'd like to explore more. Um, indigenous communities are very diverse. They, they all have unique perspectives. And on cannabis, uh, different communities are seeing things different ways, much the same way some municipalities don't want anything to do with it, and the neighboring municipality does. So I think the, the point is to respect that entirely, and that goes from taxation to land use to a whole bunch of different areas. So I think what we're saying in the report, though, is is that there's a lot of synergy here between indigenous communities and small growers, uh, certainly by their very rural nature. And uh, we think there's some real opportunities for partnerships here to to really work together. And we would see that as a next phase of work, I think, to really start to talk more formally with Indigenous communities about where they're coming from and what their goals and objectives are and to see if there's a chance to work together. There's lots of models out there for partnership. And uh, this this may be an opportunity to really collaborate, especially on some of the ethics around wellness, the, the medicinal elements of a plant, certainly the connection to the earth and a commitment to the environment, sound environmental practices, more outdoor growing. These are all things I think that we would have in common with lots of people, consumers, etc. And I think that the, what we're saying in the report is there's significant opportunities to explore this more. And I think we look forward to doing that in the months ahead. And so what are the next steps for you guys then? Where do you go from here? Next steps is uh, we put the discussion paper out. We're going to ramp up the advocacy effort and try and see if we can get some of these uh, these rules changed before the the campaign, uh, before the uh, the summer uh, as well. Uh, we will move ahead with the the, the rules of the co-op and all the nitty gritty under the legislation and with our co-op developers. We should have those ready in a few weeks, and we'll be putting those out to potential members again as a draft and have a consultation with them on next steps. And then we would move ahead with the founding meeting and incorporation after that. So we hope by that will happen through the summer. Further off in the future, what kind of plans do you have for the co-op down the road? 
Well, I think certainly a, a national a co-op would not be far behind or some sort of national organization of small producers, I think, is a natural. Uh, this is a real asset for Canada, and we know these small producers are everywhere in the country producing quality products. So I, I could certainly see that happening, and with that then becoming much more of a global uh, entity as the world moves in this direction, and they want uh, products from small producers, particularly in B.C., um, the edibles piece, I think, will be the next thing, as I talked about earlier, in terms of making sure small producers get into the edible market and aren't shut out as well. I think that's a big piece. And I think farmers getting more into retail and uh, more direct sales, uh, like we have with wine, people visiting vineyards, etc. Uh, the opportunity for the farmer to sell more directly uh, to the consumer, I think, is a trend. With that, maybe some elements of tourism. And I think the other trend, as I've talked about earlier, is people really starting to get over the stigma of cannabis, understanding the world hasn't come to an end, and to really start to look at this like we do any other agriculture or industrial sector from an element of job creation, the benefits it can bring through rural economic development, the opportunity we have to really build in a culture here of sustainability and corporate social responsibility, diversity in terms of women in leadership roles, Indigenous people being involved, uh, to really, I, I see governments now starting to get over that obsession with enforcement. We all agree that we have to have a good quality product. Nobody wants kids anywhere near cannabis. We all agree with that. Everyone's pulling in the same direction. And we can free ourselves, I think, a bit more to talk about the real practical nature of uh, what this industry can bring to communities. Well, thanks so much again for your time, David. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. To give us your thoughts on any of the topics we discussed in this episode, you can find us on Facebook or on Twitter as at coops underscore first. We'll be back in a few weeks with another episode of The Common Share.